All right, everybody, come on in. Happy Wednesday. Thank you for spending your Wednesday here at the fellowship, especially on Valentine's Day. The good news is we're going to get into God's love letter to us. So I personally can't think of a better way to spend Valentine's Day than right here. So um, if you have your Bibles, go ahead and take them out. Turn to the book of Galatians. And we're in chapter 4, starting chapter 4 tonight, speaking about the glorious gospel of grace. As we understand more and more the gospel of grace, the implications of that are that it energizes our faith. You can tell someone who has embraced the gospel, has been presented in the Bible, the gospel of faith and not by works, one of our righteousness already being, being settled in Christ. As we put our faith in Christ, there's a, a character about a person that walks in that freedom. There's a, an excitement in the life of the person that, that understands the grace of God. There's a passion, there's a love, there's a lightness to that person, and um, even with all that, we can be prone, and as human beings, we're prone to fall into uh, a works-based righteousness, and this is what Paul is addressing. He's addressing a church that knew the grace of God, walked in the grace of God, and yet there were false teachers that came preaching another gospel, and The gospel that was preached was a gospel, you could say, that was a mixture, a mixture of grace and works. So these particular individuals were going to the the believers in in Galatia, the churches around the area of Galatia, and they're saying, you need to be a Jew also. That's great that you put your faith in Christ, but you need to be a Jew too which means that you needed to go through the purification rituals that the Jewish people would do. You would need to, if you're a male, be circumcised. You would need to keep the feasts and the Sabbaths and the ceremonies and the traditions. And so what they were doing was lumping on or adding on to the gospel. And the Bible doesn't look at that as a light thing. So... Sometimes we think about, you know, a lot of different religions. It's, it's grace and works. And it's what God did and it's what you do. It's a combination. Any of that, any addition to what Christ did, the person that brings that, that doctrine is to be a curse, Paul said. Let them be a curse. They're an anathema. In other words, they're, they're damned, they're doomed, that the whole point of Jesus dying on the cross was because we couldn't add anything to our salvation. We couldn't be righteous even one little bit on our own. And that when Jesus said, it is finished, he really meant that, that we don't have to do anything to atone for our sin anymore, to make up for our sin, to account for our sin that the moment we put our faith in Jesus Christ, His blood is sufficient for all of our sin, that we are covered, that we are righteous before God. And so we're dealing with that. Uh, The implications for us is to just really um, think about and pray about where we may have gotten away from the gospel of grace, maybe in a little way, maybe a way that we can pray as we go through this that, that maybe God would show us if there's something that, that we're trusting in or counting on apart from the finished work of Jesus Christ. And so we short, sort of parachute into a place where it's a continuation of what Paul is saying in chapter 4. And he's been hitting this understanding of the gospel of grace from different angles. And as we jump right in, to chapter 4, I think it's important to just go up a little bit in chapter 3 
verse 26 and get a running start to kind of get the context of what he is talking about. So he says, For you are all, verse 26 of chapter 3, you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. So he's, he's talking about people who now have a different relationship with God than they had before because of their faith in Jesus Christ and what He has done and not because of any works that they have done. And the new relationship that we have is a relationship as a son or you could say a daughter, a child of God, that we are now part of His family through our faith in Christ. In verse 27, he says, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ, and what he means here is just immersed into Christ through your faith. He's not talking about you are baptized, so that means you're saved. He's talking about just the word means immersed. You are immersed in Jesus through your faith. He says that you have put on Christ. And that now there's neither Jew nor Greek, there's neither slave nor free, there is neither male nor female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's seed. So reaching back to the Old Testament, particularly talking about the Jews who thought, that they were very special and distinct from other people because of their lineage to Abraham. But what Paul is saying is Abraham's legacy is a a spiritual legacy, a, a spiritual legacy of faith because by faith, Abraham believed God and it was accounted to him as righteousness. So his faith, Abraham's faith, preceded by 430 years the law of Moses. And so if you are one who believes in God and puts your faith in God, then you are now part of the family of Abraham, which is the family of God, which the Old Testament was, was alluding to that, that really it was going to be by faith and not by works, by faith and not by the law. And so now by faith, there's no distinction of your genetics or your heredity or your DNA. So if you're a Jew by birth or if you're not, now in Christ you're all the same because there's just one way to be right with God and it's through Christ. So then he uses this word and then your heirs according to the promise. So the classification of a believer is described here as one that's a child of God. You became a child of God, not by your works, but by a promise, by what God did. He promised that through the seed with the capital S, speaking of the Messiah, that through Abraham's line would come the Messiah, and through that Messiah and his work, one who puts their belief or faith in him, then they would be an heir. So now we're a child of God. That's a description of what we are as believers. This is our identity, if you will, in Christ. And then because we're a child of God, we're an heir. What happens when you're an heir? So that means you get all the stuff that your parent has. So now in Christ... We have all that is Christ. We possess that which is Christ. How does an heir get that? An heir gets that because of the heir's relationship with the parent. So it is our relationship with God that allows us to be an inheritor of all the things that are are of God's. He continues this line of thinking in chapter 4, verse 1. So he says, now I say that the heir, as long as he is a child, does not differ at all from a slave, though he is a master of all. 
So someone who's an, an heir, because of their relationship to their parent, when they're young, they don't get to write checks and spend the money. It's sort of like uh, a, a parents that they have a fund for their children when they get to a certain age, and then the, the children can attack the fund, but they can't attack the fund until it's opened at a particular age. So you can set up a, a bank account and say, when, when my child hits 18 or whatever it is, and then it's theirs, but not until then. And, and what he's saying is that there's really no difference if there was a, an heir of all that money, they can't do anything that someone who's not an heir can do. They're both in the same boat or the same category. So follow that line of thinking. He says, the, the heir, the, the inheritor, as a, a child, they are under guardians and they are and under stewards. So people that are taking care of them. So the, the child heir, they're not allowed to fully enjoy their inheritance because there's a time where they're being watched over by guardians and stewards. Guardians would be like someone like a babysitter and a steward would be one who's taking care of their finances. But notice what it says, until an appointed, a time appointed by the father. Even so, verse 3, when we were children, we were in bondage under the elements of the world. So before we were saved, before we came to faith, we were living according to what the world told us, the principles of the world. But then it says in verse 4, But when the fullness of the time had come, God sent forth His Son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, that we might receive the adoption as sons. In other words... Until Christ came, the purpose of the law was to, one, reveal our own condition before God as sinners. And the second thing was to restrain evil. So to reveal that we needed a Savior, that was the purpose of the law, to um, to restrain our evil heart's nature. So that's what the purpose of the law was. And it held us, particularly the Jews is speaking of, because the law came from the Jews, so it held them. It held them to a particular time. But notice what, what he's getting at is when the son came, he was born under, under the law. And this goes all the way back to a Abraham. This was the promise God gave to Abraham. This was the capital S seed of Abraham. And when the, when the son came, then we didn't need to be under the law anymore. Because now there was a time where we can inherit what God wanted to give to us. He's saying this because, remember, that those who have received the adoption of the son, the Gentiles, the, the church in, churches in Galatia, they were going back to the time before Jesus came and died in their sins, living by the law. And so he's pointing out that that was only for a certain time, the law. The law, remember, was a tutor, was a teacher. But there was going to come a time where that, that wasn't to be in place anymore. So in verse 6, he says, And because you are sons, God has sent forth the Spirit of His Son into your hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Therefore, you are no longer 
a slave under the law, but now you're a son. And if you are a son, then you're an heir of God through Christ. So his whole point is to draw the distinction between the two, law versus grace. He's emphasizing, and he cannot do that strongly enough, that it's not both ways. It's one or the other. It cannot be both ways. They're not compatible. Living by rules to try to be righteous before God. Living by traditions. Living by keeping ceremonies and keeping rituals. Those things do not make you more holy or more righteous or more of an heir or more worthy of receiving the inheritance. That's the whole point. So don't add anything into the grace of God because now you're a son of God, you're an heir of God. What's different now is the Holy Spirit has come and taken residence inside of you. And so because of that, now you have the Holy Spirit driving your life. What did you have before the Holy Spirit came to live in your heart driving your life, your flesh. And so as much as we would try, we would still not be able to fulfill the righteousness of God. We would still not be able to be good enough and our inward self would know that we would be living under a sense of guilt. People who don't know God have to do many things to appease the guilt in their heart because whether one wants to acknowledge or recognize that or not, we know biblically that it is true. That one, the Holy Spirit is going to work from outside of us to convict us of our sin. That's one of his roles, to convict people of their sin. But then the second thing is that God made us with a conscience. And that conscience has a sense of right and wrong. And so that's why many people revert to various things in order to attempt to cover up their guilty heart. And nothing really works. And that's why many people turn to drugs and alcohol, but that's not the only thing. There are many things that are available to someone to try to cover that guilt, to try to make themselves feel okay. But in reality, it's only when we come to Christ by faith, and this is one of the most amazing thing that happens when we become a Christian. It's depicted very well in the Pilgrim's Progress, especially the most recent one that's out. And you, you see Christian going up this big hill, struggling, and the whole, through the whole movie or cartoon or illustration, whatever it is, he has this huge like backpack thing on his back. And that's the weight of his sin. And it's depicted so great. When he comes to Christ, it falls off. And he starts jumping and celebrating and rejoicing because this whole journey through Pilgrim's Progress is, is him trying to deal with that heavy burden on his back. And it's gone. And see, this is that was very well depicted because that's what it's like to be a believer, that there's no more condemnation, there's no more guilt. And so we have to be very careful that we don't put any additional or add anything to what God has freed us from. That's why the Bible says there's no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. We're free. That's the glorious gospel of grace. And do you know there's 
millions, if not billions of people walking around, many of those you will bump into and encounter that are experiencing the heaviness, the guilt, and the weight of their sin. And you have the glorious gospel of grace to tell them that they can be free, free from guilt and shame in Christ Jesus. That, that's what he came to do. And so in verse 8, he says, But then, indeed, when you did not know God, you serve those which by nature are not gods. So he's talking to the Gentiles, the non-Jews, and he's saying that before you knew God, you knew God, you may not have realized it, or maybe you did, but because the human heart is made by God to worship Him, if we don't worship Him, we'll worship something else. Don't say you're not, because you are. If you're a human, if you're not a human, then maybe not. But if you're a human, you worship something. And so that's what he's saying to the Galatians. He's like, do you remember when you didn't know God, you actually serve those which by nature, they're not even gods. Think about how many people worship so many different things and they're not even real. He says in verse 9, but now after you have known God or rather are known by God, how is it that you turn again to the weak and beggarly elements to which you desire again to be in bondage? So the, the life that he's describing, a life lived by works in order to please God, human effort, human energy to try to please God, he calls that bondage. He calls that jail. He, he calls it a, a life of, of living the opposite of free, which God has intended us to be. So now think about, this is different than one who's never known God and is in bondage to sin. He's talking about people who know the freedom in Christ and then go back. So why would someone do that? What is that? And again, we all have the tendency to do that. In our flesh, we're, we're prone to go back to that. There's a lot of reasons, but something that comes to mind is just it feels safer to us to have some sort of measurement or some sort of boundary or something that if we can live up to this thing, then that means we're good. It also has to do with control. When we come into this relationship with Christ, we have to let go of the control that we desire to have and allow God to have control of our life. But that there is a tendency that we have to watch. Those who are free, so that's, it's a thing, that we would then go back into exercising ourself and our energy in order to be more holy or to be more righteous. When God says, that we've already been fully and completely made righteous in Christ. You can't have both again. The both don't exist. They're actually opposite. So in verse 10, he says, you observe days and months and seasons and years. It's, it's like us being free and then we want to have now add more rituals so we start bringing in these things in our church fellowship where you have to do this to be more righteous you are not as righteous if you don't do this that type of thing 
particularly in Judaism, it, it was, okay, now you've been free from all those days. You know, you celebrate those particular days that have particular meanings. And months, you have these certain things you do every month and these certain things you do every week. What he's telling us now is that all ended. That all ended when Christ died on the cross for our sins. The Old Covenant, the Old Testament Judaism, it ended at the cross. So don't try to bring it forward into your new relationship with Christ. The Bible tells us that those things were shadows and Christ is the substance. They were there for a reason to give us illustrations, to give us understanding, to give us previews so that when Christ came, we would understand what that was all about. So now you've been free. Cut the cord to all of those things and be free in Christ. Don't go back to what we would call legalism or thinking that there was something we can add that would make us more holy or righteous. And if we don't do something that has been superimposed upon us, then we're not as holy and we're not as righteous. Whenever we're tempted to think that, go back to where our righteousness comes from. Where does your righteousness come from? 100% from Christ. So when Satan tempts you, understand and point him back to the cross and say, my righteousness is in Christ, not in myself. He's my righteousness. I'm not righteous. My only righteousness is because I'm in him. In verse 11, he says, I'm afraid for you. Lest I have labored for you in vain. Brethren, I urge you to become like me. For I became like you. You have not injured me at all. So what he's saying is, I used to be under the law. I know about that. So be like me, free from the law. I used to be like you. It wasn't good. It was a burden. I felt condemned. I felt like I had to keep achieving, and it caused me to be a murderer. I didn't know the love of Christ. And Paul would say in uh, Philippians 3 that I count all but a loss that he did in his past Judaism or works-based righteousness, but for the surpassing greatness of the knowledge of Jesus Christ. It's all about knowing him. All the works-based attempt to get more holy and closer to him, all of that, I cut all of that off, and it's just about knowing God. In verse 13, he says, You know that because of physical infirmity, I preached the gospel to you at the first. And my trial, which was in my flesh, you did not despise or reject, but you received me as an angel of God, even as Christ Jesus, what then was a blessing to you, a blessing you enjoyed. For I bear you witness that, if possible, you would have plucked your own eyes and given them to me. So this is interesting. Give us some, some good detail about Paul's ministry in Galatia. So it, it seems like if you remember on his missionary journeys, he would leave from a place called Antioch. It was in Syria. And he'd, that would be his headquarters. He, he would go out and he, was going, he wanted to go to uh, Ephesus. But as he got into some of these areas in, in Turkey that we know Turkey today, he got probably, this is what people think, he got malaria, which caused eyes, eye problems for him. So instead of going to Ephesus, which would have been a, the same sort of swampy type of climate where malaria was prevalent, 
he went to the area of Galatia, which is a higher altitude. And when he went there, he preached the gospel, and the people received him very well. They were excited that he came. It says that they would have plucked their own eyes out, probably referring to his eye problems that he has, and they, they were just, in other words, willing to give the shirt on their back to him and give them their right arm. Have you ever said that? I'll, I'd give you my right arm for you, or, you know, that kind of thing. But here's what's interesting. How, how they so easily embraced him and were so thankful for him, so blessed by him and co-working together. And then there came contention. There, there came strife in the relationship simply because there were other preachers that came that preached another gospel. They were so easily persuaded. And they sort of, this is what happens a lot, they demonized Paul. Or they thought less of him. The Corinthians did that too. But it's interesting how there could be a change where you can receive someone so easily and then so easily not like the person. This is a work of the flesh. And Paul is saying, how, does this, how did this happen? How do you now all of a sudden view me so negatively? How do you have such a terrible view of me? And really, you know what it comes down to? It always comes down to, in cases like this, the separator is the truth. The truth. You'll see that everywhere. You'll see that in nations. You'll see that in families. You'll see that in church bodies. The truth. When the truth starts to get in your heart, even as, so we'll talk as believers, when the truth of the sanctifying truth. So the truth after we become saved, it starts to work on our heart to make us more Christ-like. And our tendency is to be mad about it, to fight it, because our flesh is rebellious. And what happens when we fight against the truth is we like to find a scapegoat for it, somebody to, to blame or someone to be the reason when in reality, God wants to sanctify us, wants to grow us. And so the, the people in the area of Galatia, Paul's saying, how did you receive me so well that you would have plucked out your eyes and given me your eyeballs? And now what happened? It's this truth. So in verse 16, he says, have I therefore become your enemy? Because why? Because I tell you the truth. That's very interesting. Very insightful and very helpful. The truth, the truth divides. The truth is powerful. We should be those who love the truth and always want the truth and always seek the truth. When we do, there's going to be problems because the truth hurts. But see, when we present ourselves to God and we say, Lord, have at it. Make me more like you. Search my heart, O God, and see what wicked thing is in me. Don't fight when things start coming to the surface. Like when things start bubbling up in the top, don't fight that. Surrender to it because the truth will set us free. It's like surgery, cutting out the tumors of falsehood and lies and things that maybe we have sort of based our life on for years and God is surgically removing those things to free us from those things. So he's saying, am I your enemy now because I tell you the truth? They, speaking of those false prophets, 
They zealously court you, but for no good. Yes, they want to exclude you that you may be zealous for them. You know what this is like? It's like the zealous people that go around to try to make you a convert of their false religion. They do that to build up brownie points with God. The Mormons or Jehovah's Witness in in general, they're knocking at your door not because they love you, because they want to get another mark for heaven. They want to earn another stripe on their white belt. They want to get to black belt status. They want to achieve. They want to climb and ascend. And the way they do that is to get you to follow a lie. And Paul is saying these false false prophets, false preachers, they're all about building up their bank account with you. And they're They're zealous about doing that. But in verse 18, it says, it's good to be zealous in a good thing. And not only when I am present with you, my little children, for whom I labor in birth pangs again until Christ is formed in you. He's saying, I'm going to keep keep at it. I love you guys so much. I spend a lot of time, energy, physical health. I, I expended that on you, and, and now you're right back where you were, and I'm not going to give up. I'm going to, I'm going to keep, keep working at it until Christ is formed in you. Verse 20 says, I would like to be present with you now, And to change my tone, for I have doubts about you. So in verse 21, he says, Tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not hear the law? For it is written that, so he's given us uh, another example, illustration. Abraham had two sons. Who were they? Ishmael and Isaac. The one, one son, by a bondwoman or a slave woman. That's Ishmael. The other he had by a free woman. That's Sarah. But he who was of the bondwoman, Ishmael, was born according to the flesh. So why was Ishmael born according to the flesh? It's because God gave Abraham a promise that God would bring about a child when Abraham and Sarah started to doubt, started to struggle with the promise because they had gotten so old it was impossible from a human perspective for them to have a baby. So what happens when you and I, we see a promise of God, we understand it, and then we say, it's never going to happen. So I'm going to make it happen. I'm going to bring about God's promise. We'll still call it God's promise, but we're going to do it. And God doesn't work that way. There's so many applications and implications of of that very thing. Within church life, there's many churches would say that they're trusting and following in the Holy Spirit to bring about what God wants. And then they go about having campaigns to bring in the money. And then they go about doing things, having these programs and campaigns and all of that to to build something that 
they've conceived in their mind that this is what our church needs to be instead of let God bring about what the church needs to be. And then when it happens, everybody's standing around clapping. Look what we did. Isn't that amazing? And God says, I didn't have anything to do with that. That's you. That's of your flesh. You brought that about. You organized these rallies. You compromised uh, the word of God in the services so that more people would come. You begged people for money incessantly and had these campaigns. You did that. You did that. And so we have to be careful of, is this driven by the Holy Spirit? Because if it is, that's what we want. We want to look back and say, this is what the Lord did. This is not what we did. This is what the Lord did. And then he gets the glory. But see, this is a great example, something that we have to be careful about and, and watch that temptation. And granted, there's, a, you know, there's some fine lines that how much should we do and how much should God do and that, those sort of things. And I feel like we should do everything as we follow the Lord. So we follow Him. We spend our time seeking Him and praying for His will and wanting to understand His will. And we put everything we have with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength working in those things that the Lord is doing. Instead of saying, this is what we want, let's put all our energy in that and then ask God to bless it. Big difference. This is exactly what is going on here with the work of the flesh, with Abraham and Sarah saying, it's not going to happen, so let's make it happen. So Hagar, the slave, slave woman, let's have you, Abraham, go have relations with her and have a baby. We'll just call it the promised child. It'll be great. Verse 24, it says, which things are symbolic, speaking of the story that we're talking about, for these are two covenants. Hagar, a product of the flesh, doubting God's promise, and Sarah, the promise given to Abraham and Sarah that he would bring forth a child. So these are two covenants. The one, co the one uh, covenant is from Mount Sinai. What happened on Mount Sinai? Ten Commandments, the law, which gives birth to bondage. So the law doesn't make us free. The law makes us slaves to the law. He says that's Hagar. That's what she represents. For this Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia, and it corresponds to Jerusalem, which is now, and is in bondage with her children. So he, now he's talking about Judaism that's in Jerusalem. And he's saying they're still operating under the law. And when Christ came, that was supposed to end. Done. But he, he's saying they're still operating under Moses' law, under that law that was given. And that's a picture of Hagar. That's a picture of the flesh. That's a picture of trying to do God's thing in our own strength and energy. In verse 26, he says, But the Jerusalem above, it's free. So there's a spiritual Jerusalem, a heavenly Jerusalem that he's speaking of now. He says, this is the mother of all of us. Speaking of Sarah, for it is written, rejoice, O barren. Sarah was barren, but she's also a picture of the promise of faith, of receiving the promise by faith. He says, and uh, this is a quote from Isaiah 54, 1, rejoice, O barren, you who do not bear... Break forth and shout, you who are not in labor, for the desolate has many more children. Sarah was desolate, couldn't have children, but it ended up 
because of the promise and because of faith, she ended up having a son that was given to her by God. And then through that, all of Abraham's descendants came from that. So rejoice. The desolate has many more children than she who has a husband, speaking of the Old Testament law. So now we, brethren, as Isaac was, we are children of the promise. But as he who was born according to the flesh, Ishmael, then persecuted him who was born according to the spirit, Isaac. So Ishmael persecuted Isaac. Even so, it is now. So there's conflict between the offspring of Isaac and Ishmael. Isn't that crazy? That's the the Arabs and the Jews. It's exactly what we see going on in the Middle East. The conflict in the Middle East, it, it comes all the way from here. It comes from Isaac and Ishmael. Verse 30, nevertheless, what does the scripture say? Cast out the bondwoman and her son, for the son of the bondwoman shall not be the heir with the son of the free woman. So then, brethren, we are not children of the bondwoman, but of the free. We are the offspring spiritually of the free woman. We are people who are children, heirs, children of God, because of the promise, not because of the law. Still have a little bit of time. Let's keep going. So he says, because of that stand. So you see him just working these illustrations and working these different angles to try to get him to understand, to relate, to connect. And then he brings it all together and says, hey, stand. Stay firm. Stand fast, therefore, in the liberty by which Christ has made us free. And do not be entangled again with the yoke of bondage. Don't go back to a workspace righteousness. Don't be saved by faith and then try to live by works. Don't do that. Live in freedom. Indeed, I, Paul, say to you, that if you become circumcised, Christ will profit you nothing. A work that the Jews were trying to put on the Gentiles, make, wanting them to be a Jew. But notice here something very interesting. If you do that, if you go back into Judaism and the law, then Christ will profit you nothing. What does this mean? for any religion, any faith that would say that it's Christ plus this. It can't be like that because if it's going to be any sort of works or religious activity, it's going to be any of that, then Christ profits you nothing. He's making the distinction. It can't be both. It's one or the other. I think about Roman Catholicism and the Attempts to repeatedly be atoned for your sin through the the mass that they do, the mass services, the Eucharist, where they think that Christ literally, his body and literally his blood, when are are changed in those elements when it goes into your body because you need to be continually be atoned for your sins. This is the same type of thing. That Christ and his work wasn't enough. So what this tells us is, in that case, then Christ profits you nothing. Another way to look at that is, if we can be good enough or do good works to go to heaven, then why did Christ come? What was the point of him coming? There's no point in him coming. And so I would really encourage you to register this verse Somewhere because it will deal with 99% of the people that try to convert you to whatever they're trying to convert you to. 
that you have to do their thing and do their works, and, and it's works plus grace. So in verse 3, and I testify again to every man who becomes circumcised that he is a debtor to keep the whole law. So you want to go down the works thing? Then now you have to do the whole thing, which no one can do. Verse 4, you have become estranged from Christ. Wow. You who attempt to be justified by the law, you have fallen from grace. For we through the Spirit eagerly wait for the hope of righteousness by faith. For in Christ, Christ Jesus, neither circumcision nor uncircumcision avails anything but faith working through love. I love that phrase that that really stood out to me when I was studying faith working through love. That may be, to me, one of the best ways to think about the practical living out our lives as a Christian. It's faith working through love. That's how we live as a Christian. We're just believing in God. And it's this faith is working through the love of God that He has given to us. That's, that's the whole deal right there. If you want more than that, there's nothing more than that. It's faith working through love. That's how we live. Faith, we live by faith, and it works through the love of Christ. Quick note on verse 5. Verse 5 tells us that our full righteousness practically will happen and we wait for it because we're in these bodies that have not been redeemed yet. So we live by faith, meaning that positionally we are right with God, we are covered by the blood of Christ, and then practically as we're in these bodies, we wait for the full completion of that righteousness. So in verse 7, he says, You ran well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth? This persuasion does not come from him who calls you. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. A little legalism. He's specifically talking about legalism, but we can apply that to, to sin in general. But he's saying a little legalism, a little addition of my works, a little adding in of that, that just affects the whole thing. And as a body of Christ, we can't let that fester within our, our church. It's very important that we're always aware and guarding personally and corporately from legalism getting into our fellowship. I have confidence in you, he says, verse 10, in the Lord that you will have no other mind but he who troubles you shall bear his judgment, whoever he is, the false teacher who brought this in. And I, brethren, if I still preach circumcision, then why do I still suffer persecution? Then the offense of the cross has stopped. So there's something very helpful It seems like there'll be less difficulty, less trial, less persecution if we acquiesce to a little bit of works, works-based righteousness. And Paul is saying, it is because I won't relinquish my position that is by grace alone through faith alone it is because of that that the persecution is happening. And why is that? It's because it's a radical truth. The gospel is a radical truth. And it's so radical that, that people will be upset if, if you can't add anything or contribute anything of your own supposed goodness to your salvation. It's very upsetting to people. It's very angering to people. 
You're telling me it's just by what Christ has done, it's by faith alone through grace alone, that's it? And you'll typically get, get the response, well, 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 don't you have to be a good person? Don't you have to do good things? Does that matter? That's a whole different discussion. Paul's going to talk about that. Here's how Paul feels about a grace plus, the people that bring grace plus. He says, I could wish that those who trouble you would even cut themselves off. That word means mutilate, castrate. Paul's upset because this is a damning, heretical doctrine. Verse 13, he says, For you, brethren, you've been called to liberty. Only do not use your liberty as an opportunity for the flesh. So there it is. So this freedom now that it's not of works, and then you now you can be free in your relationship with God. You have the Holy Spirit guiding and directing you. Well, now what do you do with that? Do I go back now and, and sin and, and say, well, it doesn't matter anymore because it's by grace I've been saved through faith? He says that now that you're free, here's how you use your freedom. This is great. So there's a practical application of how you exercise your freedom. And he tells us, don't use it for the flesh, but use it to serve one another. Wow. So this is really exciting. So there's radical spiritual energy that comes from the one who is saved by faith alone, saved by grace alone, understanding that they're free in Christ, that it's not about rules and regulations. And now, now that they're free, they can use that energy to serve one another. That's the appropriate use of our freedom, is to radically serve one another. Verse 14, for all the law is fulfilled in one word. That is, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, beware lest you be consumed by one another. Why is he saying that here? It's because a works-based righteousness or legalism will have a tendency to make us competitive with one another or positioning ourselves with one another or inspecting one another, judging one another, putting ourselves in some kind of hierarchical relationship with one another. The gospel of grace says we're all one in Christ. We're, on the, we're all in the same category. And what is that category? Forgiven. We're all forgiven. And so what legalism does or works-based righteousness does, it makes us competitive with one another. We're against each other. We're fighting with one another, judging one another, looking at one another with an evil eye. And then when we do that, we consume one another. There's, there's no life of the Spirit working through a body of Christ. But when we use our freedom to serve one another, then there's a spiritual fragrance of Christ spreading throughout the congregation. So I'm going to finish there. I don't want to rush through this next section. We do. I could, but I don't want to. <laughs> so I know you're saying, thank the Lord. But this next section, and chapter 6 is a little shorter. So I think we can get through that next week and be done with the book of Galatians. But I think this would be a good place to start. So I hope and pray that you feel free and light in Christ. I hope you're rejoicing in the Lord. I read a, a quote this week by Andrew Bonner. He's an old missionary. And he said, 
true righteousness is just joy in the Lord. You know, when the gospel is working in our hearts individually and then corporately, that's what the world wants to see. They want to see the love of Christ in our life and working through our life to their life. And that is the most evangelical thing that we can do. And so may the love of Christ overwhelm you. That's what I'm going to pray. And may it overflow you. May you resist the temptation of condemnation, the temptation of trying to be better, of trying to be good, and use your freedom to love and serve one another. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your word tonight. It is definitely a lamp unto our feet. I thank you for this body of Christ. I thank you for the love within this body of Christ. I pray that you continue to sanctify us in your love. I pray that we would be willing vessels to receive and walk in your love, no matter uh, what it may cost us or how difficult it may be for us to look in the mirror and see areas where we're controlling or not surrendering. And so... I just pray now that each one of us would take this opportunity and just completely surrender yourself to the Lord and say, Lord, your will be done. Whatever you want to do, I trust you. We pray this in Jesus' name. All God's people said, Amen. All right. God bless you guys. Have a great night. And um, Lord willing, we'll see you on Sunday.